Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Daniel Jurgen is known for oil. We have lots of questions on oil. He has a title, Vice Chairman at IHS Market. He also writes books, including my book of the year a few years ago, The New Map. We are thrilled that Daniel Jurgen could join us today as we consider the crushing commanding heights of the United States in a new Europe and the collapse of the Russian Federation in some form. Dan Jurgen, thank you so much for joining us today. In your commanding heights, you magisterially talk about the shift of Russia in the 90s. You say the marriage of the hedgehog uh, and uh, on to the new Gorbachev era. Are we seeing a shift now with Putin? Is there an outcome that you can see? Absolutely. What we're seeing that the, that process that began in the 1990s of Russia connecting with the world economy and being integrated with the world economy is very rapidly going in reverse now as these crushing sanctions are being imposed. Russia is being disconnected from the world economy. What does the new map for Vladimir Putin look like? Uh, he grossly miscalculated. Uh, uh, I think he obviously thought this would be quick. I think he also overestimated uh, Europe's dependence on Russian energy and that that would be his high card. It turned out that, among other things, with the extraordinary growth in U.S. LNG, which was nowhere in 2016, and this year uh, will be the largest uh, LNG exporter in the world, has offset uh, Russian gas in Europe. And it may be tough, depending what happens, but uh, that, that it's manageable. And so he doesn't have that high card. Dan, let's talk about the word manageable, and I'll take it to one extreme, and you can maybe rein me back in. Are we really thinking about a Europe without Russian energy in our future? No, I don't think that happens for a long time. And sometimes people overestimate Russian gas was 29% of Europe's gas uh, last year. Big number, but that means that about 70% came from other sources. So, but I think it will, uh, when this crisis is over, whatever form they end takes, uh, Russia will be a supplier. But what will be changed is no longer will it be seen as Russia is a reliable supplier, which they've been saying for 50 years. And we heard it from the Germans. They're going to build LNG receiving terminals uh, so that they can have the diversity and depend also on the world market and uh, not be held so much rigidly to Russian gas. And Nord Stream 2 is going to, that pipeline is going to lie in suspended animation. Uh, beneath the Baltic Sea. Dan, you mentioned the Germans. The legacy of Chancellor Merkel, the history books don't look kind right now as we look back on her. And I just wonder what happens with nuclear from here, Dan. And if you can, take a moment, because we have the time with you. Just take a moment to walk through what a monster change we've just seen from a German Chancellor in just a couple of days. Well, I think that Chancellor Merkel, it was, it was a different circumstance. She had no illusions about Putin. I mean, she could speak Russian. And I mean, from the beginning, when he's uh, knowing that she had a fear of dogs, brought his big dog into the room. So and I remember being in St. Petersburg when the two of them were on the stage together. The ice was palpable to the audience. But the circumstances were different. And Putin at that point appeared to be a more rational, uh, if tough, actor. 
But I think now with the new chancellor, the statements, I think if she were in power, she probably would have said the same thing. But it is a dramatic reversal. And Putin, his, one of his major games was to welcome, to break NATO, to weaken NATO. He's done just the opposite. He's brought it together. And Germany is going to go to 2% of GDP for defense spending. We talk about the consequences for Russia as they get locked out of the financial system, but can you game out the financial consequences for Germany, for the United States, for the rest of Europe, as we do get uh, some sort of uncertainty, not only about the carve-outs for the energy sector in all of these sanctions, but just how feasible the payment for any of this will be? Well, I think that's the, the payment system. Even, you know, it's been said initially that the goal was to carve out energy so it would not hit Europe. But risk officers are not going to are, are going to be very cautious. They're going to over comply. You already see that people are not uh, doing letters of credit. Tanker owners are going to think twice before sending their tankers. So the energy trade is going to be disrupted. It's, this is not going to be a smooth thing. Uh, how bad it gets depends on how the war goes, what the Russians do and so forth. But I think you're going to see, uh, in effect, a, a sanction in a sanction on Russian energy just by the behavior of market actors. And everybody today I know is calling their lawyers saying, can you understand what the sanctions are? We don't want to make a mistake here. We don't want to get a $6 billion fine a year from now. Meanwhile, we are getting news about a possible oil release, a crude release from strategic petroleum reserves of a number of major oil consuming nations, including the U.S., somewhere of 70 million barrels. Do you think this will move the dial at all? I think it will. I think that if you add up, what is it, U.S. Production is going to increase a million barrels a day. There could be more oil out of the Gulf. If their sanctions are taken off uh, Iran, you get a million barrels a day. And I think it was inevitable that they would use strategic stocks. After all, this is what strategic stocks were built for. And so I know the administration certainly is wants to go in that direction. It'll be interesting to see what the Chinese do this time. Dan Jurgen, as I mentioned, you're wonderful. The new map was my book of the year a few years ago. Not that long ago, wrote, Tom. No, it was only a year and a half a ago. A year and a half ago. I can't remember. The brain freezes. Pharaoh keeps me up to speed. It's the only reason I keep going. Dan Jurgen, I'm reading Putin's World by Angela Stent. And I've in February, I've made it my book of the year because of this war. And what is so important, Dan, and this folds right into Commanding Heights, is 2008, when NATO and Bucharest said, we're going to push east. And Robert Gates and Condoleezza Rice said, no, no, no. And they were overruled. Yank this forward to now with what you perceive NATO will do, given the oil economy, given our new capitalism, and given America's true commanding heights. What do you expect NATO to do in 2023? Well, first, let me say I'm very pleased to see that that's uh, your your book of the year since I'm related to Angela. So uh, that's I'll pass that on. Uh, but I think that in terms of what NATO does, I think it's a, a strengthening of it. I think it's particularly the change in Germany is the one that's going to be most notable. It's going to be a much more coordinated and it isn't, you know, it was kind of fraying at the edges. It, it isn't anymore. And you may see Sweden being interested. You may see Finland being interested in joining NATO. So it's completely wow. achieved just the opposite of what Vladimir Putin wanted. Dan Jurgen, fantastic to catch up with you, sir, as always, on geopolitics, you, on this crude market of IHS market. <laughs>
Right now on Foreign Exchange, Jane Foley joins us, head of Foreign Exchange Strategy at Rabobank with all of Rabobank's commercial relationships across Europe. Jane Foley, from your strategy standpoint, what is the state of liquidity within the European financial system? Well, I think the liquidity, quite clearly, uh, there is none really in uh, the, the Russian ruble or very, very little. But I think if we move into the agricultural space, I think that's where perhaps the spotlight is beginning to shine. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, it can be a little bit more uh, uh, difficult. We're not, we're not used to having crisis that affects uh, agricultural prices or commodity prices uh, in this area. So we are seeing uh, signs of uh, a little bit of stress, un really unfamiliar conditions in, in those sorts of markets uh, uh, really <coughs> throughout. We've been talking, Jane, about how ruble will open for trading beginning last evening, 6, 7 p.m., whatever time that was. Is ruble fully open for trading from where you sit? I don't think it's going to be fully open really for a long time. You've got to bear in mind that because of the sanctions, uh, so many banks are just unable to, to, to trade with Russian counterparts and, and therefore uh, automatically you get a, a real crushing of, of liquidity. So uh, the, the prices that we see on the, the screen, uh, you know, just seem, well, we've seen an enormous spread uh, traded in the course of, of today compared with where we would normally uh, see the Russian ruble. But again, that's just a reflection of the fact that very few people are, are able to, to trade it right now. So uh, that really is, is, is not uh, a proper market and, and, and it's probably going to be uh, uh, like that for some time. Jane, taking a step back over the weekend, the backdrop changed materially in a lot of people calling the U.S.'s actions and Europe's actions a weaponization of the hegemony of the dollar, basically saying that they are using the dollar's predominance here to push Russia out of the financial system, that it would have ramifications longer term for the dollar and it would weaken it. We're not seeing that in the market. It's quite the opposite. But do you think that there is validity to this argument? That is an argument that is not new. Uh, you know, that is an argument which has been going on really at least uh, eight or so years. Or, you know, we can take it back to uh, the Crimea, for instance, uh, eight years ago. Uh, Russia really then tried to protect itself against some uh, Western sanctions, really ramping up those uh, foreign exchange reserves, increasing its self-sufficiency in, in, in food also, and also trying to have more invoices that were not U.S. dollar denominated. Now, the dollar is, of course, uh, the, the primary currency in, in the global payment system. That is why. Uh, sanctions uh, have been used by the U.S. government, you know, to, to such an extent. Think Iran, uh, and, and certainly it is a, a weapon, if you, if you like, to, to try and force a, an, another country to really back down on, on what they want to do. And it's been used very powerful in, in this instance, and, and, and really, you know, with the blessing of, uh, of, of all of the U.S.'s uh, uh, Western allies. Jane, there is a concern that there will be frictions. There'll be huge liquidity issues within the major markets, money markets, dollar financing, and. Uh, there has been some speculation, including by the likes of Credit Suisse's Zoltan Pozar, that the Federal Reserve will have to extend FX swap lines and do other types of intervention. Do you see any signs that that will be required? Um, I think sometimes the fact that a central bank is, is willing to do it might be enough. Um, because often what creates uh, these liquidity shortages is, is just sheer panic um, and, and, and people trying to get their hands on, on dollar liquidity just in case, not that they need it now or, or even uh, in a few days' time. So the fact often that the, the Fed may you know, promise that it's there, uh, that these liquidity lines are possible if, if needed, could be enough to see the, the, the tension. So this is really about stopping market panic. And we've got to remember that, yes, on Friday we did see some ports being shut down in, in, in the Black Sea. But right now, we don't have a huge amount of disruption 
yet to you know food certainly or, or energy and, and and this is where the panic could come from and, and this is perhaps why some of the sanctions that, that have been announced uh, uh, with respect to the, the SWIFT system haven't yet been universal I think uh, Europe would like to know that it can still get its hands on some Russian supplies of, of energy that's really necessary for a country like uh, Germany which of course has a huge amount of industry which will be using uh, Russian energy so this is this is it's, it's really important how it's managed to stop that panic that may then require uh, some of those extra liquidity lines. Jane, just to build on something you mentioned earlier, the ruble is not a proper market, certainly not this morning. And to build that out just a little bit more, when foreigners can actually sell their Russian assets, when the market reopens again, what kind of pressure would you expect on this currency? A, a, a huge amount of pressure. We, we've seen, for instance, uh, that the that the news from BP, that's just one that you mentioned a, a little bit earlier on, you know, selling its, its Russian stake. I think also that the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, the biggest sovereign wealth fund in, in the world, and it, it, and it, it wants to sell its, its Russian assets. It owns a, a, um, a bonds as well as a, a lot of stocks in, in, in Russia. Those will be going. Now, even if it's delayed, uh, not just today or, or another few days, at some point that selling will come. Um, and, 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 and therefore, we, we can expect a lot of downside pressure on the ruble. Jane, thank you. As always, wonderful work out of London. Jane Foley there of Rabobank. On the markets, Russ Kosters joins us now uh, with our Global Allocation Fund at BlackRock. Russ, good morning to you. What did you do over the weekend? What does a money guy, what does BlackRock do in institutional investment over a weekend as we've seen? Well, Tom, good morning. Look, I think we're all trying to figure out what's going on now. And it's very hard, if not impossible, to predict what Vladimir Putin is going to do. But I think what we do know is some things have changed and you've got to position the portfolio. So we, for months now, have been bringing down risk. We've been uh, controlling our equity beta. We've been looking at some of the early growth names that are really exposed, given the rate volatility and thinking about the long term implications for Europe for energy infrastructure, for macro volatility. Uh, again, it's not a bold statement to say that the world has changed fairly dramatically over the last couple of weeks. Have you changed your allocations yet, Russ? Or are you still just thinking about the ramifications? You know, thankfully, we had been bringing down risk for several months ahead of this. And again, I won't pretend that we had the foresight to see what's going to happen in Russia. But certainly as that became more evident, uh, as you deal with a very tough balancing act for the Fed, even before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, it was prudent, given tighter financial conditions, uh, given the uncertainty about rates, to bring down risk in the portfolio. And obviously, the events the last week or two only support that. Russ, there's an idea that the Fed will be forced to come in and actually support market liquidity, be market makers in the next couple of days and possibly even weeks as some of these sanctions ripple through the financial markets. What's your view on the Fed moving away from tightening financial conditions, moving away from the balance sheet reduction, moving away from even rate hikes in response to this conflict? You know, it's a great question. Uh, and I, I certainly think the Fed has to take this into consideration. We are now in a world where there is very significant two-sided risk. The, the impact on confidence, the effect of higher oil prices. Having said that, uh, it's not obvious that the Fed has to completely or, or can completely rip up their game plan because you still have a world in which domestic inflation is at a 40-year high, it's broad, it's sticky, which means the Fed is probably still going to have to hike. Where I think this has an impact is how much do they go in March? How quickly do they start to change the balance sheet? 
But the direction of travel still has to be towards the removal of some accommodation. Russ, where and what are you focused on in this market at the moment through today? What will you be laser focused on? So I think there are a couple of things, you know, Jonathan, you're talking about the European banks. Obviously, that is a big deal, as well as the impact on the overall European economy. You know, just given the geographic proximity, uh, given the spike, not just in oil, but in gas prices, you know, what is the economic effect in Europe? I think the second we're just talking about is the Fed. The third, are we seeing any change in the behavior of U.S. consumers? So far, the answer to that is no. When we look at high-frequency data, there's still an underlying strength to the U.S. economy. But does that change given higher oil prices and these just very, very significant events going on in Europe? Russ, where would you look for stress? And do you see any signs of that now? Well, I think the stress obviously is going to come in a couple places. One, the names that are most exposed to Russia. Uh, you know, again, fortunately, outside of energy, outside of particular commodities, you know, this is not an economy with tremendous links to the rest of the world. Uh, but the transmission mechanisms really are about banking, about the financial system, and of course, energy. We keep coming back to energy, and the reason for that is, you know, again, if this would have happened five or six years ago, uh, when oil was a lot lower, it would have created less stress economically than obviously it's creating in a moment when you already have very high inflation in the U.S., in Europe, and already elevated oil prices. Hey, Russ, thanks for being flexible this morning. Great to catch up with you, buddy, as always. Russ Kostrick there of BlackRock. When I woke up this morning early and I did not know what I would see, I really underestimated, John Farrell, what you and Lisa have led on this morning, which is, I guess I'm going to call them non-sanctioned sanctions. That would be a good thing, John, to start with Oliver Wyman's Daniel Tannenbaum. I think we can call them South sanctions. Dan Tannenbaum, Ooh, I like that. the head of America's anti-financial crime, Oliver Wyman. Not my term, Dan, but let's work through it. We've had the sanctions, and Dan, what we're all trying to work out is how it works in practice. How many companies, even if they don't have to abide by these sanctions, choose to pull back anyway? No, thanks, John. And, and obviously, if you see oil companies walk out of the market, I think that's a pretty good indication that you're going to see other businesses. And I do like that self-sanctions point going to begin to walk out. I'm hearing from clients of other businesses beginning to draw up, which they had actually started looking at in December, those exit plans of do we really want to remain in this market? Is it viable for our business? Especially, you have to remember, Russia hasn't really responded with their version of whatever sanctions may be. So if you're a non-Russian business operating the market, depending on the positions you take, this might be an untenable position. Look to see more companies announce their exits from Russia in the coming days, that's for certain. Dan, that's what they're choosing to do. What are you suggesting they should do? What's the advice you're giving them? I think, you know, look, the advice I'm giving right now, there's still a lot that's on the table. You know, this is a squeeze on the Russian economy. That's for certain. And I said it on this show on Friday, and sadly, it keeps coming true. Russia is well on its way to being treated like Iran, like Cuba, in terms of being a truly isolated economy from humanity. So I, I think as I look to what businesses need to do, it's actually getting simpler the more significant the sanctions get because there's less of a needle to thread and more just an exit that the business is too untenable to take on the risk more broadly. So going a little further, Dan, is the risk for a lot of these companies that the U.S. will uh, remove the carve out for oil companies, that the EU will do the same? Or is it just that it will be too 
complicated financially in order to execute some of these transactions with all of the numbers of sanctioned players. And it doesn't even make financial sense at this point to keep going. So I think that is the question to watch. And as you look at some of the sanctions and the Treasury Department just put out the U.S. central bank sanctions, I think as I was walking on here about 10 minutes ago, we've still not seen what banks are being de-swifted. And it was very clearly stated over the weekend that only some banks are going to be taken off SWIFT. That's largely to facilitate that continued legal transactions. I think energy, you know, there was talk that the central bank is the nuclear option. Energy restrictions are the nuclear option um, with respect to Russia. And I would be surprised if you didn't see programs start leaking out that begin to shrink the amount of Russian energy that's allowed to be traded. You can't ban it. You have certain countries that are 100 percent reliant on Russian oil, Russian LNG. There's there's a whole set of statistics that say this is a frontier economy, an EM economy. And yet every statistic says it's the 11th largest economy in the world. What is the power of Saudi Arabia right now? to make Russia the 15th largest economy in the world. I mean, Russia may fall out of the G20 by the numbers this week at the rate things are going. I think Russia's position and how its allies or what few allies remain kind of holding their line um, is a really important point to see. I mean, this economy is in crisis. I mean, you're seeing it's essentially being cut off from most of the West through these sanctions that have been imposed, which does create a broader opportunity for some other nations to kind of increase their standing potentially. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Who, who can be, I don't see how someone's advantaged by this war and by the economics and capitalism of this war. You're suggesting someone could be advantaged? I think possibly. I mean, frankly, this is the global response to this situation with a few exceptions, we didn't see this much of a rallying around the flag globally with respect to COVID that we've seen with how Ukraine is being handled. So I don't think anyone's looking for this necessarily as an opportunity to leapfrog other countries from an economic standpoint. I think right now there seems to be a pretty uniform focus on how to diffuse the situation mm -hmm. and get Russia to pull back its troops. Dan, just getting some headlines from Boris Johnson in the UK, pushing for Russia to be excluded fully from SWIFT. Dan, do you get the feeling this isn't over? So the, the swift comment, and this has been constantly used as some sort of silver bullet. If you take everyone off of swift, any Western businesses still performing any legal trade, including energy trade, would have a very difficult time facilitating getting paid. So I really do think the complete swift ban is an overblown comment that's been made by a lot of politicians around the world. It's definitely not over. There's more companies that can be restricted. There's more sanctions that can be levied. You can drip out oligarch sanctions. And even over the weekend, it was announced the U.S. will begin potentially seizing physical assets. And who doesn't love to see a yacht seizure coming up? That could be what we see. Dan Tannenbaum of Oliver Wyman, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.